are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. This evening I find that I need to speak to the reading from the Gospel according to Mark. So let me set aside the reading from Job for this week with a promise that I will pick up on that story in all of its complexities beginning next Sunday. It was a good number of years ago that someone talked to me after being in this liturgy on the Sunday in which these verses from Mark appeared. And she remarked that for her, this was always a really, really raw week. You see, she wasn't inclined to look at the passages in advance, and so inevitably she found herself both surprised and vulnerable when this Sunday arrived, and we again read, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And yes, this person was someone who had lived through the breakdown of a marriage had managed to make her peace with it all, but this reading always caught her off guard. And yes, I am a divorced person. It wasn't something that I wanted or planned. As many of you will remember, the breakdown of my marriage five years ago is something that left me more than a little broken. In the little book I brought into print this past winter, I wrote of how I reacted to it all. In the days immediately following my realization that my marriage was in deep trouble, that at the very least I was facing a separation and quite possibly a permanent dissolution, my emotions swung wildly between anxious fear and desperate hope. I shook constantly, found myself unable to sleep, lost my appetite, had trouble keeping down whatever little food I could swallow. I found coffee almost entirely unpalatable, and even the thought of favorite foods like seafood or olives made my stomach lurch. I couldn't focus enough to read or watch a movie, so late evenings would find me pacing the streets around my home, getting more and more tied up with anxiety and quite probably compounding my sleeplessness. In my imagination, I would conjure up little glimmers of hope, thinking that if I did this or said that or found the right marriage counselor, Maybe we could have one more try at things, faint hope to be sure, and each time it would fade as quickly as it had come. I'd written, quote, in the days immediately following my realization that my marriage was in deep trouble, but looking back I realize it was in fact months, not days, that found me in that space. Had Kalen and Rachel not come forward with a proposal 
to join on as part-time staff, I'm not sure how I would have coped. Right from the beginning of that July into the opening weeks of September, I was that raw. I had to have someone over at my house on any night that I would otherwise be alone because if I hadn't, I would have been desperately lost. But people came. They came and sat and listened and tried to help settle me down. They came to see if maybe there was something I could be eating or if there was something that would distract me or give me hope or something, anything other than that space of broken remorse. There are some of you here who did that. And I need to thank you for your steadfastness through those hard and sorrowful weeks. You helped me walk through those first few months and then through the following four months prior to my boarding a plane to go to Halifax where I spent five weeks in a kind of a retreat facing down all that I was and all that I'd lost and all that was yet promised. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, Mark tells us. They came with a question by which they meant to trap him. Or, as the Good News Bible translates this, they came and tried to trap him. It is lawful, they ask. Is it lawful, they ask, for a man to divorce his wife? That wasn't my question. Not at all. I knew that those Pharisees were trying to trap him, and I wasn't interested in seeing Jesus trapped. I wanted, I needed him to see me and know me and pick me up and place me back on my feet. I had glimmers of that those first few months. Sometimes when I was alone and sometimes thanks to the people who came and sat with me out on my back porch and encouraged me not to lose hope. Yet I wasn't entirely sure I could do that. I also knew the answer Jesus gave to those Pharisees and the teaching he offered later to his disciples once they were alone, and I had to contend with those. In replying to the Pharisees, Jesus is canny. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. And at this point, you can sense the pause before he begins to set out his deeper and more demanding point. He continues, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is appealing here to Genesis as a deeper source than the allowances contained in the book of Deuteronomy which he has characterized as being only allowable due to the hardness of the human heart. 
By appealing to the text from Genesis, Jesus is essentially saying, this is how things have always been intended to be. Draw your own conclusions, my Pharisaic friends. It's when he gets back to the house. The disciples ask him about divorce that Jesus gives his even more demanding teaching. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The Pharisees had only spoken about a man's ability to divorce his wife, and here Jesus ramps it up to speak about how it implicates both partners. He sounds utterly uncompromising, doesn't he? Oh, sure, you might be able to conjure up some idealized picture in which one partner is completely innocent and the other other is utterly at fault. But frankly, that's nothing more than idealization. Nobody, nobody at all is that completely innocent. So over those months, I would look back and I'd see all the places where I had failed. I'd berate myself for all that I'd missed or gotten wrong or simply ignored in a blind hope that it would all just work out. If only I had just... But that's not what happened, and I knew it. It was six months after I was confronted with the failure of my marriage that I boarded a plane to go to Halifax to spend five weeks in an intensive retreat with a chapel community at the University of King's College. I wrote all about it in that little book, A Kind of Solitude, which comes with a rather long subtitle, How Pacing the Cage with an Icon and the Book of Common Prayer Restored My Soul. I won't go into all of that here other than to say that my spiritual director, Father Gary Thorne, constructed for me, what he constructed for me was a whole lot of time without just a whole lot to do. Now some might imagine that such time would be welcome, lovely in its own way, so restful and restorative. But Father Thorne set things up in a way in which I wasn't to spend much time reading or writing, or preparing sermons, or doing any of the kinds of things I normally love to do on my own. No, no. I was to write an Eastern Orthodox icon, do a painting of Christ in the Orthodox style. And that was about as far out of my comfort zone as you can imagine. I was to attend three, sometimes four, chapel services each weekday, all using the traditional Book of Common Prayer. And I was to pace the cage, whether that was in the streets of Halifax around the college, in my room in the empty residence building in which I was living, or just in my head. Father Thorne was quite sure he had written to me that, quote, it will be difficult to find the boredom and inner chaos that can lead to a divine restlessness. Spending unproductive time in your cell is important. 
Frankly, I didn't have a clue as to what he meant, or at least I didn't until I was so deeply bored and restless that all I could imagine was getting on a plane to head back home where I'd sit by my wood stove and I'd read whatever I damn well pleased. And I came close one day. It was funny then. The morning that I looked in the bathroom mirror and I saw light in my eyes. I looked again, switched off the light, opened the blind. I stood to one side and looked again, then turned on the light again. That's light in my eyes. That's really light. And it was. There were yet a number of ups and downs to go after catching that glimmer of light in my own eyes, yet there had been a shift. The person who'd arrived in Halifax both fearful and ever so optimistic had died. Someone new was emerging there in that little room on that cold wintry morning, a kind of resurrection. I once asked the theologian Robert Ferrer Capon about his own experiences of having a marriage collapse, specifically where his courage had come to then remarry the person with whom he'd spend the rest of his life. It's quite simple, he'd answered. You just have to die. You just have to die to the old fears, limitations, mistakes, misjudgments, and failings, and trust that God has given you a new heart with which to get on with what remains of your life. Such a simple thing if it weren't so impossibly difficult. Then again, that is so often the shape of grace. Let the little children come to me, Jesus had said to those who would sooner have chased the children away. Don't stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. And by these, he means those children who had no rights, who were easily dismissed as inconsequential, and who might even be easily exploited. Let them come to me, Jesus says. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter. I know what it is to be reduced to that place of being but a child. Vulnerable, hurting, broken, and lost. And I know what it is to be lifted up wrapped in his arms and blessed. My divorce was marked by so much loss and pain, but in Jesus that has not had the final word. He has had the final word. No, he is the final word. And slowly he lifted me up, dusted me off, and set me on the road again, dead certainly, but surely raised. That is the best good news I know, ever and always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.